This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Stella Remington, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. Oh, can I call, do I call you Dame Stella? Or you have no, just call me Stella. Okay. Stella Remington is a best-selling author and former Director General of MI5. She joined the security service in 1968 and held multiple positions in espionage and counterterrorism before she was appointed Director General in 1992. She was the first female Director General of MI5. She has written an autobiography and a series of novels about intelligence officer Liz Carlyle. Her latest novel, The Devil's Bargain, is another gripping political spy thriller. Stella is in the UK and, as I said earlier, so happy to have you here. I have never, ever spoken to a spy before. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's your opportunity. (laughs) Here's my opportunity and I'm super excited about it. I have spoken to over 400 authors and I have never, ever spoken to a spy. Okay, what I want to know is how you became a spy, as much as you can tell me about your career path to becoming the Director General of MI5. Well, it was not a career that I ever expected to have because in the days when I first joined MI5, which was in the late 1960s, you couldn't apply. It was a sort of secret thing and you had to wait to be tapped on the shoulder. Okay, so how did you actually become a spy? Well, I was in India with my husband. Uh, I, was wor- I wasn't working. I was a diplomat's wife. I had had a career, but I'd given it up to go with what? him when he got a posting. What was that career? The career, I was an archivist, a historical archivist. Right. And I was working in the India Office Library in London. I got married and my husband was posted to the British High Commission in New Delhi. And in those days, wives followed their husbands. So I gave up my job and I went off to India with him to be a diplomat's wife. And I was doing what diplomat's wives did in those days, which was running coffee mornings and jumble sales and and appearing in amateur dramatics and such like things when I was beginning to get bored and somebody tapped me on the shoulder, which was the classic way of recruitment to British intelligence in those days, and offered me a job. And the job was as a part-time clerk typist in the MI5 office in New Delhi in India. And that's how I started. How old did you have been? Uh, that was probably, I was about 31 or something like that, probably by then. Oh, okay. Yeah. So quite a, a bit older, really. Uh, uh, yes. I wasn't, I wasn't a babe in arms. No, <laughs> I, no. Was, I was, I'd had, I'd been working uh, for about five years probably. And after university, because I mean, unusually for those days, I actually went to university. A lot of women in, in Britain in those days didn't, you know, we were expected to sort of have a little job uh, until we got married and then we would be wives and mothers and that was it. But mercifully, my career went in a different way. Okay, so you're working as a part-time 
uh, did you say typist? Clark, even though I couldn't type it, but that didn't seem to matter. Why do you think I chose you? Was it because they had a vacancy or because they thought there was something? Yeah, they had a vacancy. He, um, It was a very small uh, outfit. There were only uh, three of them, I think. And uh, they had slightly more work than they could cope with. And they needed somebody to help out with the clerical stuff. And they spotted me, I think, because obviously I was the wife of a diplomat. So I was bound to be OK, safe, secure and all that. Mm. And I didn't appear to be doing much. And I was looked like a likely lass, I suppose. So that was the job they offered me. I was, you know, I wasn't really suitable to be a clerk typist, but nevertheless... Because you couldn't type. <laughs> because I couldn't type. And I didn't know much about being a clerk. Either. But uh, it, it wasn't difficult. Um, but it was it was it was fun because it was a terribly exciting time to join the intelligence services because it was the height of the Cold War. And India was one of the forefronts of the Cold War. Can you explain that further to me? What yes. were some of the tasks that you were doing and what were you seeing? Well, my tasks were fairly mundane in that I did the typing um, and I had to seal up our, our diplomatic bag uh, to go to London. But the basic thing was that, as I say, it was the height of the Cold War. East met West, as they had been doing, you know, vying for influence in that part of the world. So there were lots of spies there. The spies came from the KGB and their allies in Eastern European countries. From the West, we were there. MI6 was there. The CIA and the FBI were there. And we were all watching each other and trying to recruit each other. And, and I got involved in some of that, obviously, even though I was only a clerk typist. Anyway, I saw the results because I was typing the letters back home. And the job of the MI5 office in those days was to help the Indians with their security and to um, try and identify who the spies from the other side were, report them back to London so that their names formed part of the great sort of massive intelligence that was kept should they ever have appeared in London we would have known that they were you know part of the intelligence service that sort of thing that's what we were doing and that's what I was doing what's the difference between MI5 and MI6 MI5 is the home security service Um, our job in MI5 was to protect the country against serious threats to their national security whatever they may be at the time MI6 are our foreign spies most countries have two different services uh, MI6 works mainly abroad, collecting mm-hmm. intelligence, trying to recruit people and that sort of thing. So okay. they're, they're the two angles of, uh, of a nation's intelligence mm-hmm. services. Mm-hmm. So when did you progress from being a typist clerk to what was the next step? Well, the next step was when we came back to the UK and I decided that I would try for a full-time job in MI5 because it looked more exciting than being an archivist. So I did and I got a job and it wasn't really until I got the job that I realised that MI5 was running a two-tier system in those days. The men did the intelligence gathering work. They were called officers, even though our services are not military. And the women were the other ranks, basically. And our job was to stay at home and help and look after the files and, you know, that sort of thing. We were, we were the helpers. Mm. And I didn't realise this, that, you know, that there were, it, this was a sex discrimination thing until I'd actually joined. And I think if I'd known in advance, I probably wouldn't have joined. But anyway, that's how it was. And this was the beginning of the 1970s. But then gradually, with the rival, even, you know, even in MI5 of women's lib and sex discrimination legislation and such like, that division between men and women gradually broke down. And in fact, we helped break it down by saying to our bosses, 
you know, we're not prepared to put up with this. What's wrong with us? We've got degrees. We've got previous employment, just like the men. And uh, they had to they had to change. They had to give us a chance. And that's how I started, really, in my proper career. Uh, and what was your proper career? Well, the first thing uh, that they did when when we made our sort of complaint um, and, and said, well, uh, you know, we're not going to put up with this, they didn't quite know what to do. So they decided they were going to have to give some of us a chance. So the first thing was that I went on a course designed to teach us the skills we needed to, they thought in those days, to recruit human sources. And the first thing I had to do on this course was to go into a pub, and we're talking now about the 1970s, London, go into a pub and find out as much as you possibly could about anybody in this pub and then, um, you know, with some cover story about who you were and why, what you were doing and all that stuff. And then uh, unbeknownst to you, somebody was going to come in to the pub and sort of blow your cover story. And the test was how much did you learn about this person and how did you react when this other person came in to blow your cover story? And it was a ridiculous thing, actually, to ask a young woman to do in London in the 1970s because my pub that they gave me, you know, you go there, uh, was a pretty sleazy dump, quite frankly, and it was all full of men. Mm-hmm. And I went up to one of these guys and started chatting him up, and um, I got myself into a really quite embarrassing situation. And the man from the course came in to blow my cover story, and I treated him as a bit of a saviour, actually, because I'd got into such a difficult situation with this bloke. So that was the beginning, and it was obviously entirely unsuitable, and that was, the, you know, the, the thinking had mm. gone so far, but not far enough. And that was the beginning. And then I did start doing that work in earnest and um, and proceeded from then on, really. So doing the, spy um, work. Yeah, recruiting, trying to recruit human sources to tell us what was going on from the inside. And that's basic, fundamental espionage work, really. It's trying to it- recruit somebody from the other side, from whether it's the terrorist organisation or the hostile intelligence service or whatever it is. And how would you do that? Give me an example. Oh, well, it, I mean, it's not um, <laughs> highly defined. I mean, obviously, it depends what you're trying to do. I mean, it depends whether you're working against a terrorist organisation, like yeah. in my case in the 70s uh, and the 80s, it would have been the IRA, um, or whether you're working against a hostile intelligence service and it's... Uh, would depend, but I mean, what you what you have to do, you have to research the organisation. You have to look at the people as much as you know. You have to identify somebody if there is anybody um, who is looking discontented. You have to adopt some cover story. Uh, you have to get to know them. You have to da 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 da. It's it's a long winded process, but the key, I think, is that by excluding women from doing that work, they were they were basically excluding you know, half or, or a certain amount of the talent because, you, mm. I mean, some of the skills that we talk about, the sort of female skills are just the kind of skills that you need. For that, it's about sort of uh, empathy and listening and the ability mm. to um, reassure and and create confidence and all the sort of things that we talk about 
as the female skills. So let me let me try and put an example together. <laughs> so you would, it, let's say it's the IRA, so you would target, and I guess you would be watching them for a while or you would know enough about them to know that somebody's not happy then. You would approach that person, you would befriend them, and the, the role was that they stay where they are but they start yeah. giving you information. Yeah, that's what you want, obviously. When you talk about that, that makes my heart race right now, right, as <laughs> if I'm reading it. It makes me so frightened and so scared right now talking to you. How did you feel? Were you frightened? Uh, there were some frightening situations, but it's not as frightening as you might think because you are you know, it's not scientific work, but it's carefully thought out. You're not just going charging in. And if you are doing something dangerous, like, you know, meeting somebody for the first time or whatever, you are protected. You don't forget that, you know, you've got loads of colleagues and there are people who are expert at counter surveillance who can who can see if anybody else is there or, or when this person, you know, mm. it, it's difficult to describe, but you can imagine that you're not just launching forth on your own into some dangerous situation. You're surrounded by a carefully thought out plan to make <laughs> sure you're safe and that the mm. person you're going to meet is not just sort of luring you into some kind of trap. So really every day was kind of thrilling. Would that be right? Well, no, I wouldn't say every day was thrilling. Some days might have been quite boring as you right. sort of sat at your desk and wrote up what you'd been doing or, you know, read files or, you know, there's all that sort of stuff as well. It's not a sort of mad rushing about from dangerous situation to dangerous situation. That would be totally misleading to say that. And did you have a family at that stage? Yes, I had uh, two daughters. Yes, while I was doing that work, I did. The, the girls were quite young. In fact, my youngest daughter was a baby. And I did have, you know, awkward situations, as you always do. I think any working parent mm-hmm. has always got to make choices about, you know, whether they go to the nativity play or whether they go to the important meeting and whether they try and do both, that sort of thing. I had situations like that, yes. And did you travel abroad at all for work? At that stage, um, at that no, time. not at that stage, really. No, because MI five is, as I said, is our domestic yeah. security yeah. service. So most of the work they did in those days was based in the UK. So no, I didn't. I mean, you might travel abroad to meet foreign colleagues or to discuss cases that uh, were international, but not to to do the sort of frontline work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, this might be a silly question, but I'm going to ask it. Outside of Google and social media, how on earth did you back then find out about people? How did you do that? Um, in lots of ways, really. I mean, there, there is, in those days, there were very extensive paper files. It seems incredible now to talk about mm. it, but there were, and you, there was a lot of information in those files that you could, you know, by research and whatever, you could find out. The basic um, means, I suppose, of espionage and counter espionage are still the same. I mean, there is for there is a, the sort of classic intelligence tools like, well, counter surveillance, you know, following people around to see who they're meeting, what they're doing, getting a feeling for the person. There is um, the interception of communications, which is the classic uh, espionage tool, which means in those days, actually, there were only really two means of communication. And that was by ringing somebody up on a landline or by writing letters and putting them in letterboxes. So the interception of communications in my day was comparatively, well, was straightforward. You knew what mm. you were doing. <laughs> you either listened into telephones uh, with a, I mean, these are the sort of things for which you need uh, official approval. You need a warrant, et cetera. So it's not, it's not just kind of casual, none of this. It's all very, very carefully structured and controlled. But in those days, as I say, the interception of communication was listening into telephones or opening the mail. Nowadays, of course, I mean, these things are much, much more complex. And one of the problems for nowadays is how do you keep pace with the growth of digital communications, all these platforms, et cetera? And, um, uh, you know, how, how, do you, how do you do it? And one of the problems is um, exactly that, keeping pace. Uh, with the, um, you know, the development of, of communications of all kinds. Although, you know, it's much easier to stalk somebody via Google and Facebook than it would have been back then. Well, that's true as well. I mean, there are things that are easier. Yeah. You know, for example, uh, listening in to conversations and things like that. It could be fundamentally said to be much easier now if you've got the technology and you know what you're doing. The, mm. the, uh, the world's rolled on in many ways. And some things are easier and some things are enormously more difficult. Mm. So back to the career path. So you did this for a few years. Tell me how you yeah. worked your way up. Well, I suppose then I'm, I spent quite a lot of time in, in counter-espionage because the threat in those days came from the Soviet Union and their allies, obviously. And our job was to try and find out who the spies in London were. I mean, you know, there were lots and lots of actually concealed intelligence officers pretending to be diplomats and, and journalists and bankers and heaven knows what. And our job was to try and find out who they were and scupper their activities in one way or another. So I did that for a few years in the counter-espionage department. And then um, I was moved to um, various other departments and I ended up in the counter-terrorist department, by which time I had been promoted and I had uh, actually, I arrived in the counterterrorism department as the director because I'd gone through the various wow. stages. And um, 
it was just about three or four days before Lockerbie, you know, the Pan Am 103, the American aeroplane that was brought down Mm -hmm. by a bomb over Scotland. Uh, So that was my sort of baptism of fire in that department. And I felt there that as I hadn't worked in counterterrorism for really ever, actually, because I'd spent most of my time in other areas, I felt sitting in the director's chair somewhat inadequate because I didn't really know at that stage what my job was. I mean, it was obvious I couldn't, at that stage, I couldn't do all the investigations or the agent running or the whatever or whatever. So I had to, this is my was my sort of first sense of leadership and responsibility. What are, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like just doing better the things that you've done before. It's a completely different job being a director and being the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to work out, you know, that my job was actually to make sure that the people who were doing the work on the streets had all the skills and the, and the knowledge and the equipment and everything that they needed. Well, to and do the it. funding and uh, I, I feel and that, that a director, sorry to interrupt, sir. I feel no, that no. that position sets the mood, don't you think, of the organisation? I mean, it, it does, it does, yeah. absolutely. This was a, one of the kind of main areas of the services work by that time because, um, you know, terrorism had grown during the 80s and, and uh, the 90s, etc. So, yeah, and of course my ultimate job was to carry the camera when things went wrong and mm. go and uh, report to the Prime Minister what we knew and what we thought was going to happen and such like, uh, which wasn't always the easiest thing to do. So that was uh, the fir- my first really se- serious uh, responsibility job. And from then on, I moved on at that stage. I mean, we, we were very busy in, in that area because terrorism was on the on the on the uh, expanding really. Because, mm. as I say, for us, it started really with the situation in Northern Ireland, but then terrorism started to take off all over the world really, and the IRA became more active and expanded its efforts from Northern Ireland into uh, Great Britain, and so there was a lot of work to do. Mm. I mean, and this is probably coming from a very naive perspective, just from watching movies and reading fiction like yours. But it (laughs) seemed to me for a long time that the Russians were were the bad guy. So then the Russians were the bad guys in books and the Russians were the bad guys in movies. Mm. And then when 9-11 happened, it was now the Arabs that are the bad guys. Mm. And then they became the bad guys in the books and then they became the bad guys in the movies. <laughs> and I feel as though we're going back to the Russians at the moment. <laughs> well, I think we probably are, given what's happening in, in mm. Ukraine. Um, you don't forget that the Cold War came to an end in the late 1980s, uh, beginning of the 90s, and we thought at that stage uh, in our innocence that with... As the Cold War had come to an end, uh, we wouldn't be having to do so much work as we had Mm. done in the Mm. counter espionage field because we found ourselves at least able to make uh, friendly contact, particularly with the East European countries who had been in the Warsaw Pact, the allies of of the Soviet Union. And so we found that we were able to go and visit these people and help them as they tried to turn their intelligence services from services that worked in totalitarian countries, from services that worked in democracies. And that was an extremely interesting part of my life, actually, as I got involved with people who had effectively been our enemies all my working life. 
And that really happened towards the end of the 80s and the beginning of the 90s. And we, I, we also made contact with KGB. And I led a small delegation in 1991 to make our first contact with the Soviet KGB as it faced the fact that the Cold War was over and that Russia was changing completely. Uh, it came about because our foreign secretary met Yeltsin, who was in charge at that time, who said he wanted to reform the KGB to make them more fit for a more democratic system. And so we went to talk to them about how mm-hmm. intelligence services work in democracies. But uh, as, as, you, as history tells, uh, there wasn't much change took place ultimately and Yeltsin fell and uh, the KGB turned into lots of other things, but it didn't actually fundamentally change. Mm-hmm. So that's... Um, that they were still there, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, mm. When you say that uh, terrorism took over, um, basically espionage still went on. So mm. there was still there was still work to be done on both sides, and there still is. Mm. It's interesting, actually. I was I was only today reading something about Russia and the Ukraine and all the Russian army to say that it's not as nimble and as well polished as they led the mm. world. Yeah, as mm. they we all thought it was something, but it's turned yeah. out not to be that. No, that seems to be the assessment of our military experts as well, that uh, it's not turning out to be as smooth and effective as everybody thought it was. But nevertheless, it's uh, still very, very formidable opponent. Oh, definitely. But it's messier too, isn't it? I I wonder whether they're getting the outcomes that they wanted. Yeah, well, it sounds as though it's not going as as it was intended, certainly. Mm. Mm. Okay, so uh, what year did you leave? I I became director general in 1992, and I left in 1996, I think it was, after uh, four and four and a bit years. Yeah. And why? I'd reached retirement age. I thought I'd probably been there long enough. Um, I had other things I'd like to do. Um, So, yeah, it seemed the appropriate time to go, yeah. And so when did you start thinking about writing about it, writing fiction? Had you thought about that in your career? Yeah, I'd often thought I'd like to write a spy story because, you know, I've I've always read sort of police police things and spy things and all that. So I thought I was annoyed by the fact that in all espionage, almost without exception, books, the lead characters were men. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, you know, that's not true anymore. Looking around my service by then, there were quite a lot of women uh, working in, you know, getting on very well and doing very good work. So I thought it's about time we had a female. But I thought about this. But of course, when you're working, you can't do anything about it because you don't have time. Mm. So strangely enough, when I came, when I, you know, when I retired from that, I the first thing I did was write my autobiography, which I'd never intended to do because it was, you know, regarded really as taboo. Mm-hmm. But I had actually at that stage, I'd given quite a few talks to women's groups about, um, you know, about the work-life balance and how, what it was like mm-hmm. doing that kind of work with small children and, and you know, the things that happen and sort of things all women now know, understand and know about and, and fight with. Um, so I wrote my autobiography which was uh, not greeted with any great enthusiasm by my former colleagues. In fact, they didn't want me to publish it, really. I had to submit it for clearance as 
as all senior public servants do if they want to write about their career. And um, in the end, it was cleared and I published it. So that was how I started. And then after that, having kind of got used to the publishing world and having met a publisher, and because uh, I started with Random House, mm-hmm. and um, I thought, well, maybe this is the time when I can have a go at the thing I really wanted to do, which was writing a spy story. So uh, that was how the first one of the Liz Carlyle book started, which was called At Risk. And I had a lot of help with that because it's not easy. I mean, you know, suddenly turning your hand to writing fiction uh, when the kind of thing you've been used to writing is sort of official documents and such like. Reports. Even though I, yeah. yeah, and all that stuff. <laughs> Although I had a character in my head, which was Liz Carlyle. Uh, so that was the first book. And then uh, I went on then. Uh, mm. I got um, I got sort of um, into the skin of Liz Carlyle. And so mm. Liz Carlyle went on doing various things and having a, an exciting career. So in a way, do you think that your career moved on for you to, you know, you became a writer, an author, and were you approaching that as work, as your career? Like, you know, did you have a routine where, they, you know, you would write, 500 words or 1,000 words a day. Tell me how you approached it, because as you said, it's not easy writing a novel. No, it isn't easy. And at first, Mm. I didn't, no, I didn't regard it as my career. I was doing other things. I mean, I joined the board of various companies and and a a charity. I chaired charity and various things. So it was just one other thing at first. And then gradually, and so it wasn't, I didn't sit down every day and say, I've got to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to write this number of words. No, I never have actually done that. I think I write in bursts. Uh, I do a lot of uh, full days at a time, and then I stop and uh, start again, etc. when I get to you know a certain point. It's about thinking in between what's going to happen next. Mm. Um, so it's not a it's not a sort of project, a fully formed project on any occasion. It's a plot, a broad idea of a plot, without knowing exactly who, what's going to happen or who's going to do it. So it's it sort of unfolds. I think probably. Do you think that it is a prescriptive your fiction? I mean, do you think that they're prescriptive texts for people wanting to be a spy? Do you think? <laughs> no, I don't, and I hope nobody would regard them as that. Um, they are fictional works. <laughs> Um, with imagining, but they really are, but they plot. are fictional works with experience. <laughs> well, they are. So I th- are. the things that happen are broadly the kind of things that might happen, um, but they're not, not the kind of things that did happen. I bet um, you've never been asked that question. <laughs> not really. No, I haven't. <laughs> I hope nobody does take them as a sort of guide, and I'm sure they don't. Um, if they did, I don't think they would get very far. Um, no, but the plots are credible. <clears throat> I yeah. think I would I will say that. Uh, the plots are credible and the kind of things that happen, i.e. <clears throat> the way um, the plots unravel and the kind of things that Liz Carlyle does are the kind of things that she might do in real mm. life. Mm. Do you think things are changing for women all the time? Not just in that world, but just in your experience. <clears throat> Not fast enough, I don't think. No, 
No, I agree. I mean, I was, um, I because I've, as I say, I've got two daughters who are both obviously grown up now and, and working and have got children. And mm. I just, I feel disappointed, really, mm. that life is not easier for them than mm. it will really, well, a bit easier for them than it was for me, but not that much. And I mean, I, I suppose... When I was working, I thought, well, you know, this is all going to change. It's going to be easier. There'll be better childcare facilities and such like. But there really aren't. Mm -hmm. And maybe there is no proper, you know, permanent satisfactory solution to Mm -hmm. working parents. Uh, You know, doing the two things has always got to be a compromise. Mm, It's difficult. We're out of time, Stella Remington. I have enjoyed our conversation (laughs) so much. (laughs) So have I. Thank you so much for your time. No, not at all. Thank you very much indeed. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.